KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Drew Faust, the first woman president of Harvard, talks about growing up in the 60s. But first, as Labor Day approaches, it's time to look at our hot labor summer, the most strikes and the most union action in a long time. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Good to be here as always. Well, the biggest event of our hot labor summer happened last Friday. It was not a strike. It was a ruling by the National Labor Relations Board. Tell us about that. Well, it was probably the most significant ruling by the National Labor Relations Board in the last half century. And what it addressed, which has been an ongoing concern of the board's uh, general counsel, a woman named Jennifer Abruzzo, is that the labor law has been so weakened by a set of court decisions and previous NLRBs and what have you, that it no longer really uh, performs the function for which the National Labor Relations Act was written, which was to allow workers to collectively bargain. The decision was in a case called CMEX, and it said two things. It radically changed the unionization process, uh, basically, by forbidding employers from doing all the illegal things they have been doing for half a century to deter workers. It said that when a majority of workers say they want to affiliate with unions, let's say by presenting cards that they've signed, the employer may choose to voluntarily recognize them. That, of course, has always been the case and is never, never <laughs> happens. Or the employer is compelled to request a board-certified election. What's really revolutionary is the second half of that ruling. It says that if the employer uses a unfair labor practice in the run-up to the election or during the election. Now, let me just interrupt here yeah. and ask, does it ever happen that employers use unfair labor practices in elections? Well, it's probably not 100% of the time, but it certainly is higher than 99% of the time. <laughs> okay. And the most common unfair labor practice, as scholars have researched and documented, is firing uh, workers who want to unionize. That's against the law, but there are no effective penalties against it. So what the new ruling says that if the employer commits an unfair labor practice, the uh, board will uh, order the recognition of the union and order the immediate beginning of actually bargaining a contract. Wow. That is revolutionary. There was a law review article in uh, 2017, which documented that the number of unfair labor practices, which had been at about a thousand a year. Then once this change happened in 1969, it quickly rose to more than 6,000 a year. And it then slowly declined. But the reason it declined was that unions were abandoning organizing workers because under the new rules, they knew they would when John Sweeney ran an insurgent campaign uh, at the, for the AFL-CIO presidency against the old meanie Kirkland regime, he documented that most unions were spending only 3% of their budgets on organizing. You know, and that 3% was a, a clear sign that they couldn't get around the labor rules. Well, the board 
accepted Jennifer Abruzzo's brief, and the rules have significantly changed. So if employers illegally fire pro-union workers in the lead up to elections, from now on, the NLIRB will order the employer to recognize the union and enter into bargaining revolutionary transformation for uh, American labor. Uh, but employers still have one powerful weapon in their anti-union arsenal. Tell us about that. They sure do. And that is that they can just refuse to come to terms in the bargaining. They can delay it. They can say, we'll think it over. They can say, we're busy now. Call us back in six months. All of this, of course, is, is again, a way to keep union, unionization at bay. The more recent versions of labor law reform bills, which have all failed to get past the 60-vote hurdle in the Senate, have included uh, language to mandate uh, a government arbitrator coming in and uh, imposing a contract if, if the bargaining go you know last for more than whatever it is 90 days or 180 days uh, but uh, un until congress passes uh, such legislation the employers still have an out nonetheless nonetheless this is coming at a time when as we know labor militants is at a new level this really is kind of suddenly a green light flashing to american unions saying hey this is the best time to organize since the late 1940s. And there's news about potent, more potential strikes. Uh, 150,000 auto workers voted to authorize a strike if the big three auto automakers don't sign a contract with the UAW by September 14th. What was the vote on authorizing an auto strike? Uh, it was 97% yes, uh, authorizing the strike. So that sounds pretty much like what you want in the way of, uh, of solidarity. It, it, the UAW always had a slogan which ended solidarity in the ranks, and they got solidarity in the ranks. And I understand the biggest underlying issue in the potential auto worker strike and in the negotiations which have been underway all summer now involves the transition to electric vehicles, which the Biden administration has put a lot of energy and a lot of money and tax breaks behind. What does the union want and what's, what's happening on that front right now? Well, there are two issues about going to electric cars. One is that it takes fewer workers to produce electric cars, but also the companies are setting up plants that are joint ventures with experienced uh, lithium-ion battery uh, manufacturers who basically come from East Asia and saying, well, this isn't uh, for us to extend the contract to, to these workers. They're, they're kind of on their own. And the union is saying, hey, building an electric car had better pay just as, just as well as uh, building a, a gas-powered uh, car uh, has been. And this is this is a major issue. And in the weeds of the Inflation Reduction Act and, and such, there are ways that the government can pressure companies to uh, unionize building uh, electric cars or electric buses or what have you. And in fact, on, on Tuesday this week, there was a ruling out of the Treasury Department 
which went further than some other rulings, uh, pushing recipients of federal funding uh, to uh, basically allow their workers to go union. So, you know, we'll see where this ends up. Well, one of the key fronts in this battle over unionizing uh, the manufacture of electric vehicles is Georgia. There's a coalition of labor unions and civic groups in Georgia and in Alabama, the New York Times reported on Monday, launching a campaign to target Hyundai's electric vehicle plants and their suppliers, especially the battery manufacturers. Hyundai is building an electric car mega site outside Savannah. It's the largest economic development project in the history of Georgia. Hyundai is one of the world's largest automakers. It is non-union. It is expected to reap huge benefits from Biden's push to transition to electric vehicles. In Georgia, uh, Republican Governor Brian Kemp is providing $1.8 billion in tax subsidies for this new Hyundai megasite outside Savannah. It's the largest tax deal in the history of the U.S. auto industry, not just Georgia history, all of American history. Uh, The prospect reports that the construction contract for the new Hyundai electric vehicle plant did already go to a non-union firm, one that, by the way, has contributed heavily to Republicans. Uh, The UAW is one of the key unions in this campaign in Georgia about the uh, Hyundai Hyundai megasite. Georgia, of course, is a key swing state for Biden in 2024. How much can the UAW ask for here? How much can the Biden administration ask for? I understand that this labor community coalition in Georgia is seeking what's called a community benefit agreement, a kind of a standard thing where the company is asked to promise to hire locally, to provide training for new workers, to protect the environment around the plants, to hire and promote women, minorities, and vets. I notice making these union jobs is not on that list. Uh, How does the UAW imagine this could be a win? Well, to begin with, Hyundai is a union company in its home country of South Korea, and all of the transplant factories of BMW and Mercedes and Volkswagen and Toyota and Hyundai and what have you are unionized in their home countries. They're just not unionized in the American South, as it were. Uh, They uh, go along with the local anti-union folkways of uh, Dixie. What we see in the demands uh, that this coalition has put forth, this basically, I think, originates with an organization called Jobs to Move America, which not surprisingly is headed by a woman named Madeline Janis, who was the spark plug of the living wage movement, which also focused on community benefits. This is sort of your ultimate plan B. This is the best you can get when you can't actually affect unionization. But, 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 this was all put in place before Friday's NLRB ruling which suggests to me that, among other things, the auto workers who have failed to unionize any of the Southern auto factories, all of which have involved campaigns doomed by unfair labor practices, see previous part of conversation. Uh, And so this is a rapidly changing landscape. Of course, (laughs) any, any change of landscape in the American South is probably for the good, 
So we'll see where the combination of these two significant developments can bring. I see that the UAW has not endorsed Biden for re-election yet. Uh, Why not? Because they're holding out for more pressure to guarantee that these folks working in electric car facilities or electric car parts facilities go union. And, you know, Biden has been making speeches to that effect. And we're seeing, you know, some rulings from some of the government agencies that control the Inflation Reduction Act funds, which is mainly what's funding this huge growth in factories uh, around the country, where these rulings come down on the issue of unionization. And as I mentioned, the Treasury Department has just well under the radar issued some rulings which, which do promote unionization. So, you know, they are leaning on Biden. I mean, they're not going to endorse Trump that's or any Republican, but they are leaning on Biden to get as many union engendering rulings out of the various federal departments as possible. And last but not least, I understand there's a new AFL-CIO poll on attitudes towards labor unions. Yes. And like all the recent polls, it shows that unions have a higher approval rating than just about any other American institution in the 70%. But one thing that struck me was that uh, on the poll, people who were from between the ages of 18 and 29 had an 88% approval rating for unions. I noticed this both because it was obviously so high. And because in adding up the uh, unionization votes of all the university grad students in the last year and a half who have, uh, you know, who are TAs and RAs and who voted to go union, I calculated that 89% of those (laughs) grad students voted for unions, which really matches that 88% union approval rating among Americans between the ages of 18 and 29. This is generation union that we're talking about. Harold Meyerson, he writes about labor at the American Prospect. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Drew Faust about growing up in the 60s. She was the first woman president of Harvard from 2007 to 2018. Before that, she was the founding dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And before that, she was the Annenberg Professor of History at Penn. Now she's a member of the History Department at Harvard. She's the author of six books, including the unforgettable work, This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War. It won the Bancroft Prize and was named by the New York Times one of the 10 best books of 2008. Her new book is Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. We reached her today in Wellfleet on Cape Cod. Drew Faust, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, you grew up in Virginia in the 50s, in the segregated South, in a family that was part of the white elite. You write that you grew up in the constant company of black people, human beings central to my life. But, but what? 
but they were always in positions of subordination. This was a segregated society and a hierarchical society. Uh, a kind of bombshell went off in the middle of that decade with Brown v. Board. So change began to be imposed on Virginia. And the politicians of Virginia resisted that very vigorously, didn't want to integrate the schools, uh, argued they should be closed rather than integrated. So that brought race to the fore and made it explicit in a way it hadn't been before um, Brown v. Board forced uh, recognition and a kind of um, coming to terms on uh, Southern society. You write that the only newspaper your family received in Virginia was the Morning Telegraph. What was the Morning Telegraph? The Morning Telegraph was a uh, newspaper for people interested in horse racing. And my father's business was horses and horse racing. So he read it avidly every morning to see what was going on in the and the track and the past performances of horses running that day. And I suppose there was news about the industry of horse racing, but that was not of interest to me particularly. But I was fascinated by the stories of individual horses and their, their, their races. As a kid, you were a reader, not surprising. You read Nancy Drew and books about girls and ponies, not surprising. But you also read The Diary of Anne Frank when you were nine or 10 or something like that. How did that happen? Were you looking for a story about the Holocaust? Did you have friends who were Jewish? I didn't, I don't think I knew anyone who was Jewish at that time. I'm now married to someone who's Jewish, so that, that's a bit of a change. But I was a reader in part because I was looking for stories that provided a pathway for me to imagine a future other than my mother's domesticity and the domesticity of all the women of our social circle. And so I loved reading about Nancy Drew because she was such an adventurer. Nothing seemed to phase her. She could do anything. And Girls and Ponies were a little bit like that too, because these were girls who were learning to be very proficient, often training horses and thousand pound beasts would be subjected to their, to their will. Uh, but I remember picking up Anne Frank um, in a bookstore in New York, and it had on the cover of this particular edition, which is illustrated in my book, a story of adolescence. So I picked it up because I always wanted to be an adolescent from the time I was about nine years old on. <laughs> I was an aspiration to get to that. So I thought this will be an interesting book. And I had no idea what I was getting into or what I would be reading. And it was completely eye-opening for me in so many ways. First of all, introducing me to the story of the Holocaust. I'd always been interested in what had happened in World War II, because my father had been in the service and came back from the war, and we knew that was really important. But reading the diary of Anne Frank gave me a very different perspective on, on what the war had been about. And she, of course, is so reflective and introspective and smart and interesting that you felt as if you just had a new friend. There was someone talking to you. And so I got deeply engaged in the book and then horrified by, of course, the outcome for Anne Frank and, and her family. I've read a lot of memoirs written by 60s people, and virtually all trace the origins of their activism to the same moment, the sit-in movement in the spring of 1960, when black college students in North Carolina sat down at segregated lunch counters and refused to leave until they were served, facing physical attack from white mobs with nonviolent resistance immensely inspiring, but your epiphany, as you call it, the shock of recognition, 
that spurred you to take your first political act came well before 1960, although it did involve the civil rights movement. Tell us about your epiphany, what happened and how old you were at the time. My epiphany came as part of this aftermath of Brown v. Board and the upheaval in Virginia that was caused by the demand that schools be integrated and the response from white Virginia politicians that this should be resisted, which meant that there was a certain amount of conversation about race that had never been made explicit before. And I also overheard one day coming home from school, I was being driven by a Black man who worked for my family. And I was sitting in the car and I heard on the radio about some of the debates and issues and confrontations that were taking place around this issue of school integration. And I suddenly realized in the car at that moment that my school was all white for a reason. It wasn't an accident. And I asked the black man who was driving me, is it true that if I painted my face black or if I were black, I wouldn't be able to go to my school? And he kind of hemmed and hawed. He didn't want to take the risk of being involved in a discussion about integration with a young white girl. But his silence or his um, evasion underscored for me that I was right. And how old were you when you heard the news? Nine. I was nine years old. And then what did you do with this realization? I wrote to the president. I got a piece of notebook paper from my school notebook, and I penned a letter to uh, Mr. Eisenhower, as I called him. And I told myself this story, you know, as I was growing up and, you know, making my way in the world. And then I was asked to write a piece, probably in the early 2000s, for a collection of autobiographical reflections by Southerners who'd become historians. And so I was getting ready to tell this story about how I wrote to Eisenhower, and I thought to myself, maybe I made it up. Maybe I'm like all those people who fought with the French resistance who didn't really fight with the French resistance, but claimed to. So then I thought, okay, you're a historian, Drew. If that letter was written to a president, there's a good chance it would have been put in the archives. So I went to the National Archives asking them, or wrote to them, actually. I didn't show up. And they said, well, you really should be asking the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas. Lo and behold, this wonderful archivist there found my letter. So I hadn't made it up. And there was my letter from my nine-year-old self. And I, so I was reunited with that little girl. In your letter to President Eisenhower in 1957 is the frontispiece of your book. Tell us a little bit about what your uh, argument was there. Well, when I requested a copy of this letter from the archivist in Kansas, it was in the early 2000s. And so there wasn't any scanning. He said, I'll Xerox one and send it to you. So it took, I don't know, a week or something. And I spent that week worrying about what on earth I might have said <laughs> with the racial outlook of a white Virginia girl, uh, age nine. And I anticipated that my arguments would have been the Declaration of Independence and so forth. But they were very religious, actually. When I got the letter, I kept appealing to God who loved all God's children. And I came from a family that wasn't super religious. I mean, I got sent to Sunday school every Sunday, but we didn't say grace at meals. I mean, there wasn't a like religious pervasive atmosphere. But nevertheless, I thought my best argument was God. I guess, especially since I was writing the president, I had to find some higher authority. So <laughs> I told the president, God told you to do this. And that was that was the foundation for my letter, which, of course, became the foundation for 
the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King's leadership and, you know, appealing to the Christianity of white Southerners. And that's what I thought my best argument was. Moving ahead to 1964, you left for college at Bryn Mawr. Your father had gone to Princeton. Yes. And my older brother as well. And then the brother after me as well. So it was a family tradition. Had Princeton accepted women, probably they would have pressured me to also go to Princeton. But I had no pressure at all. No one, my mother hadn't gone to college. No one had any strong notions of where I should go. So when I said, I'm going to Bryn Mawr, that was fine with everyone. Why Bryn Mawr? Well, I was a very bookish kid. I loved intellectual life and work. And so I, I was very attracted by Bryn Mawr's identity as being highly intellectual. You write Bryn Mawr in 1964 represented a peculiar sort of feminism. Please explain. Bryn Mawr was a place that believed in the ability of Bryn Mawr students to do almost anything. And we were encouraged to have that confidence because we could compete with any man and Bryn Mawr was going to enable us to compete with any man and in a sense transcend the constraints that ordinary women confronted. And so it was a feminism about us, but it didn't urge us or open us to think about woman as a category or to think about the ways in which women were subordinated in society. So when I graduated, and I think this was true for a lot of women who graduated from Bryn Mawr, we both felt emboldened, but also we were so unaware of the hurdles that we were going to have to confront and the ways in which sexism was going to operate in our lives, even though we were, as we had come to think of ourselves, so well-equipped to compete with any man. And that, I believe, was what I would call Bryn Mawr feminism. There was this uh, saying that I heard often in those days at Bryn Mawr, our failures only marry. What's the story there? Well, Bryn Mawr had a very fierce president in M. Carey Thomas, who was a woman, grew up in a privileged family in Baltimore, was outraged when she couldn't pursue graduate work in the United States, pursued it in Europe, became the second president of Bryn Mawr. She was a lesbian, had lived in two open lesbian relationships, and she believed women could do anything. The library, when I was at Bryn Mawr, the library was named after M. Carrie Thomas. It's since been denamed because she was an anti-Semite and a eugenicist, along with being an avid feminist. So her name has been besmirched, shall I say, in the years since, since I was a student there. But one of the sayings attributed to her was, uh, our failures only marry. This was rendered sometimes as only our failures marry. That's sort of different. <laughs> it is different. But our failures only marry gave us permission to marry, I guess. But it said you better do something else with yourself as well. In 1964, your first year in college, you went to a meeting of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. You read the Port Huron Statement, which argued for participatory democracy. You learned about the SDS project to build an interracial movement of the poor in the North. Tom Hayden was organizing in Newark. 
Bryn Mawr and Haverford SDS were organizing in South Philadelphia. This was SDS before Vietnam. And you went to work with the SDS South Philly project. Tell us a little about that. It was called an ERAP project, which stood for economic, you probably know better than Economic I research. <laughs> and policy. Economic Research and Action Project. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we just always called it ERAP. It was dedicated, this project was dedicated to improving the well-being and the fortunes of the people who lived in South Philly, who were impoverished in many cases and very close to the poverty line in others. It wasn't the most desperate part of Philadelphia. That would have been North Philadelphia. But it was a part of Philadelphia that was clearly uh, in need of economic assistance and uplift. So we were going to organize people to demand better things for their communities. And we started with an issue that, that was intended to bring people together so that then they could ask for other things once they were organized in a, in a way to affect, effectively voice their concerns. So the issue we organized around was rap control, something we thought everybody could agree on. So I spent much of the fall of 1964 in South Philly, knocking on doors with my SDS teammates, trying to persuade residents of the houses of South Philadelphia that they should join together as a community and demand rat control. And then we thought they'd go on and demand all kinds of other things. And, and that was that was the goal. Bridmore had one legendary SDS leader, the valedictorian of the 1965 class, Kathy Boudin. Later, she became a leader of the Weather Underground, and much later, she served 22 years in prison for the Brinks shootout of 1981. She led an exemplary life in prison, was paroled in 2003, died last year. Of course, she didn't start out as a weatherman. After graduation in 1965, she went to work on the SDS ERAP project in Cleveland. Did you know Kathy Boudin in Bryn Mawr SDS? I did not know her because she spent her senior year of college in Russia. She was a Russian studies major. And so she was a legend as being brilliant. And every progressive professor that I took a class with would talk about having taught Kathy Boudin, but I never met her. And then March, 1965, another high point of your book, that was Bloody Sunday on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Civil rights people marching from Selma to Montgomery were attacked and beaten. One of them was John Lewis. You write, I knew I had to do something. What did you do? I went to Selma. There was a follow-up march, and Martin Luther King eloquently said, America must bear witness and speak against these atrocities that were inflicted on John Lewis and others. And there'd been murder. There was a murder of a a preacher, there'd been a murder of a uh, young Black activist in the preceding weeks. And so Martin Luther King said, this is America, you must stand up for the principles on which this, this country has been founded. And I thought to myself, this is a moral challenge. If I don't do something now, who am I? Who can I ever be if I just pass the buck and say, I'm not going to stand up for these fundamental rights? And so my boyfriend and I borrowed a car and drove to Selma and marched over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the march that um, Martin Luther King had, had called for. And then the very next month, April 1965, mm -hmm. you went to what you call 
your first anti-war rally in Washington. Actually, it was everybody's first anti-war rally in Washington. It was the SDS March on Washington. This is the turning point when SDS and all the rest of us change our focus from civil rights to, to Vietnam. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember people singing folk musicians who I'd heard only on records, cherished records that I played in my dorm room. I remember mobs of people going every which way. I remember a sense of urgency and solidarity. It wasn't the disillusioned marches that came later, the angry marches. We had a sense that we were going to turn this around and that our voices would be heard, that people would listen to us, that we would be able to change things. And by the time I graduated from Bryn Mawr, which was not all that much later, only three years, which seems like an eye blink in my life now, but was, of course, an eternity when I was 18 years old. Three years later, we were so frustrated because no one had listened to us at all. And the war had escalated steadily. And by the spring of my senior year, it seemed that maybe we could at least run a candidate. And Johnson was out. But then by the summer, it seemed that was impossible. From the high point of spring 65 to the frustration and alienation of 68. You graduated in June 1968. You turned 21 in September 1968. What did your mother call it? Well, my mother wasn't alive anymore by the time I got to 21, but there was a phrase she used frequently. And she would say, well, somebody's free, white, and 21. They can do what they want. Free, white, and 21. 21. And it turns out that this was a phrase frequently used in American popular culture. You can find it in many films. It was a phrase that in one film, Harry Belafonte expressed his disdain for when someone says it in front of him. It appears all over the place. And so it was very much fixed in my mind, this terrible phrase. And it's interesting because it doesn't say free white 21 and male. It just says free white and 21. So a lot of the people you see using it in popular culture are women claiming the right free, white, and 21, even though they're women. And so it's a very interesting phrase and an appalling one in in the centrality it played in the the public consciousness. So free, white, and 21 meant, among other things, you were old enough to vote in the 1968 election. As you say, LBJ had been forced to withdraw from his own reelection campaign that spring by anti-war sentiment in the Democratic Party, led by Gene McCarthy, senator from Minnesota, my home state, and then by Bobby Kennedy, who, of course, was assassinated the night of the California primary uh, that June, and that left Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president, as the Democratic candidate facing Richard Nixon, who had lost to JFK in a very, very close election. This was your first vote in a presidential election. Who did you vote for? I voted for Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory, African-American comedian. And anti-war activist. Yes, yes, anti-war activist, progressive in every way and funny besides. And he was endorsed by a number of Ivy League newspapers, publications. He became a kind of protest vote, but it was also for me in some ways more than that. He wrote a book, a campaign biography called Write Me In, 
which is really a classic of that era. And when I voted for him, little did I know that what I found out as I was researching this book, I was two, one of two votes in my county for <laughs> Dick Gregory, one of some 1,600 votes in the whole state of Virginia for Dick Gregory. So even though it was a protest vote, I could see it. I could see my vote right there and preserved for posterity. So it, I was it, not alone in choosing this among people my age. And what were you saying with your refusal to vote for the Democrat, Hubert Humphrey? All I was saying was give peace a chance. <laughs> Great. So Nixon won by less than 1%. I remember that when I told my father I wouldn't vote for Humphrey because of the war, he said, think of the Supreme Court. He was a good Minnesota Democrat. Yes, yes. Of, cor of course, now, now I, we see how right he was. Did anyone suggest anything like that to you at the time? I'm trying to think who might have. Most of the people I hung out with, my friends were of similar political views, but I'm sure people must have said that to me. You know, any sensible adult who was of progressive views would have said, think of the Supreme Court or Humphrey will come around or he's so much better than Nixon. But Humphrey had been so subordinated to Johnson in ways that just, uh, it just turned your stomach almost to think, why didn't he stand up? Why didn't he speak out? Why didn't he make more of a space for his own views if indeed those views were anti-war or, or progressive? One last thing, the title of your book, Necessary Trouble, where does that come from? Necessary Trouble is a phrase often attributed to John Lewis. It's one of his catchwords. He says, make trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And I got to know John Lewis a bit when I was president of Harvard. He very generously came to Harvard for a number of occasions. One was when we put up a plaque to remember enslaved workers who had toiled within the Harvard president's house in the 18th century. And on my last commencement, he gave the commencement address, last commencement as president. And he turned to me at the beginning of his talk and said, thank you, Madam President, for writing to Eisenhower and for making Necessary Trouble. And when I thought about this book, Necessary Trouble really is what it's about. It's about how I had to extract myself from the expectations of being a girl, of being a little white person in segregated Virginia. To survive, I had to make trouble. It was necessary trouble. So I called him just a couple months before he died and asked if it'd be all right if I called my book Necessary Trouble. And John Lewis was such a gracious, wonderful person. And of course, he said, I would be honored, please do, and so forth. So the title is a bit of an homage to him, but it's also a really accurate description of what my life was like as a young person in the 50s and 60s. Drew Faust, her new book, Necessary Trouble, is the best memoir about growing up in the 60s that I've read in a long time. Drew, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. 
Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Ah!